chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. Read along with me in uh, verses 27 to 31. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And not only for your word, but for the examples within your word of how you have worked in your people and through the events and circumstances in their lives. Help us to listen, help us to understand, and help us to apply these words to our life that we may grow in the likeness of Christ and be further conformed into his image and be more pleasing to you. In the book of Esther, there's a key passage which reveals the main point of the whole book. And as we read that, and I'm sure you've heard the phrase, it it directs our attention to uh, the mystery and the wisdom of divine providence. And especially in, in that book, as the divine providence unfolds in the scenes and circumstances of that time, and the history of God's people and the events that they're going through. And that passage is Esther chapter 4, verses 13 to 14. And it's this interchange, this dialogue um, with Mordecai and Esther. And and, uh, Esther, well, actually, he sends a message to Esther. And he says, uh, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether or not you, whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Throughout the whole book of Esther, um, the providence of God is put on display. As we see God's people, and in particular the main characters of Esther and Mordecai, be put through a series of harrowing events as their future and welfare and that of the nation of Israel hangs in the balance. 
And it's throughout those events that we are continually reminded of the last sentence of that passage. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And that rings true throughout that whole book. And that sentence, and specifically the phrase, for such a time as this, points us back to the sovereign hand of God. As we see him directing the events, the scenes, and the characters through every circumstance with precise timing for his glory and the good of his people. However, it is not only in the book of Esther that we see this this mystery of divine providence unfold before our eyes. And it's not only in the life and circumstances of Esther that we see the phrase for such a time as this ring true. We can see the providence of God put on clear display in the book of Ruth. And so much so that I'm sure she could say that she was brought into the nation of Israel for such a time as this. We also see the providence of God in the life of Moses. From his birth to his upbringing in Pharaoh's house, from his escape from Egypt to his life as a shepherd, and from his call to ministry at the burning bush to everything that would happen afterwards. And I am confident that he could look back at every event and say that he was brought there for such a time as this. And, you know, throughout the rest of the Bible and the Old Testament, we see this mystery of divine providence unfold in the lives of God's people. And sometimes it's crystal clear in some of the books like Esther and Ruth, and other times we have to look a little bit closer for it. But we can see it throughout the whole of Scripture. And we see it here in the book of Isaiah. As God sends that prophet to his people throughout the span of 60 years and during the reign of four successive kings in Judah, as the Assyrian Empire is in its dominance, it's the reigning superpower in the world at that time, and it's posing a looming threat to every kingdom and nation in the Middle East. And so God sends Isaiah to warn his people of his coming judgment at the hands of the Assyrians and to call them to repentance for breaking his covenant by engaging in all manner of idolatry and wickedness and also for seeking refuge and security through um, working up alliances with these nations like Egypt or or. Uh, Edom or, or any of the other surrounding nations. And just as they are working alliances, um, they're also worshiping the false gods of those nations. And, and the way, you know, I, Isaiah, he's rightly one of the major prophets, uh, along with Jeremiah, and he covers such a long period of time. And in, in Israel's history. And the book covers a lot of ground. And throughout the first 39 chapters of the book, we see warnings of judgment on Israel, Judah, and every surrounding nation around them. It is No one's left out. Everybody's about to receive God's judgment. And we see calls for God's people to repent and trust in Him. Also, with those calls to repentance, we see uh, the promises of God's faithfulness, of future redemption and the coming of the Messiah. 
And then in chapter 40 and following, we see a shift in the message from one which is primarily of judgment to one which is primarily of redemption. And as we look at this passage at the end of chapter 40, um, you know, keep in mind the historical um, geographical context is that the Israelites are in a very, very bad situation. And either they are already under captivity, as a lot of scholars believe that Isaiah is speaking to the future exiles, or he is speaking to the people towards the end of, of uh, his life and, and at the end of Hezekiah's reign who are looking at um, the destruction of Israel by the hands of the Assyrians and, and uh, Babylon about to take over and come in. But whatever the case may be, wherever they are, um, God is sending Isaiah to call his people to repentance. And they are under his judgment. His judgment is looming upon them. And he confronts their unbelief. He calls them to trust in him, to place their hope in him, and to wait upon his deliverance. And, and in this passage, as Isaiah's calling them to trust in God and to repent, we, we see three reasons. Three reasons why we ought to trust and hope in God, whatever our circumstances may be, knowing that God has ordained them for such a time as this. And, and so first, we trust in God because of his faithfulness. Verse 27, Isaiah says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? And, and, and it's interesting here that he says, Jacob and then Israel. He says, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? He's saying almost the same things, but then he says, Jacob, and then Israel. So, which is it? And throughout the book of Isaiah, we see this juxtaposition of Jacob and Israel. Well, isn't Jacob Israel? Wasn't Jacob renamed Israel? One who strives with God? And so there's this wordplay throughout the book. And... Uh, I think what is happening here is that God is in a way reminding them of, of the character of Jacob and also reminding him of his promise to Jacob and his promise to the patriarchs. And, and we remember Jacob and his character um, conniving, striving, um, always trying to work out things in his own strength, for his own benefit, rather than, than trusting in God. And, and it's almost like uh, when, when Jacob um, runs away from Esau and, and he, he falls into the hands of Laban, it's almost like he meets his match. And God teaches him a lesson during that time. And it's so much so that when he comes back into the land and he... He wrestles with the, the pre-incarnate Christ, God himself. It, it, it's, it's like he's brought to an end of, of himself, to where he's forced to trust in God. And, and it's, it's as if 
When, when Isaiah says, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, it's as if he's calling Israel or Judah at that time, the people of God, to re- remember what happened, to remember the character of Jacob, and to remember the promises of God. And, and rightfully so, because afterwards it, it says, why do you say my way is hidden from the Lord and my right disregarded by my God? This is like, like Israel, the, the people of God are saying, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right disregarded by my God. It's, it's almost like an indirect charge against God and his faithfulness. Rather than just coming right out and saying, you're unfaithful to us, God. Why, why, why are you putting us in this situation? Like, there is doom awaiting for us from the nations. Why? You're being unfaithful. And God's almost, in a way, speaking through Isaiah, do you remember who Jacob is? Do you remember my promises? Do you remember my covenants? And he's reminding them of a... God's faithfulness to Abraham, to Moses. That God is faithful to his people, but he's also faithful to his covenants. In Deuteronomy 7, it's almost like the charter of Israel. And God, speaking through Moses, writes, For for you are a people, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations, and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his faith. God, God is he's faithful to his people. He, he deals with his people exactly as he said he would. He sends them into exile because he said he would if they disobeyed him. But he's also faithful to himself. He's faithful to his character. God, God cannot lie or deny himself. And, and so because he cannot lie or deny himself, He's also faithful to his covenants, his words. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28. And this is the end of the Torah, the end of the law, um, the second giving of the law before the people go into the promised land. And just, just look at this. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 28 and some of the warnings and, and curses in verse 32 to 34. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people. 
while your eyes while your eyes look on and fail with longing for them all day long but you shall be helpless a nation that you have not known shall eat up the fruit of your ground and of all your labors and you shall be only oppressed and crushed continually so that you are driven mad by the sights that your eyes see go back go down to verse 41 You shall father sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity. Verses 49 to 52. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. It shall eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. It also shall not leave you grain, wine, or oil, the increase of your herds or the young of your flock until they have caused you to perish. They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land. And they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land which the Lord your God has given you. And then 29... Verses 24 to 28, he says, All the nations will say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land? What caused the heat of this great anger? Then the people will say, It is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land and went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they had not known, whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are this day. God is faithful to his word. He's faithful to his covenant. In Leviticus chapter 20, verse 22, he says, Therefore, you, you shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. See, that, that's exactly what had happened. It's exactly what God said would happen <laughs> if they did not obey his law, if they did not follow him, if they did not um, take care of the land and... and Follow all his statutes. Because he's faithful. He's faithful to himself. In his commentary on Isaiah, Jeffrey Grogan says um, in this, about this passage, he says, Here God reasons with his people on the basis not of new disclosures about him, but of truths they were already familiar with. Certainly, this passage is the locus classicus of the rhetorical argument in Scripture. It's a rhetorical argument when he says, says um, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? And, and then even in verse 28, he says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? They have known. They have heard. Because Mo- Moses taught them. The priests taught them. Samuel taught them. 
all the prophets up until Isaiah taught them. And, and during Isaiah's time, there was a lot of other contemporaries, a lot of the minor prophets were also ministering to his people. They knew. They heard. They had no excuse. No, we, we can trust in God because he's faithful to his people. Even if, if that means he's faithful to discipline them, discipline them because he always does what is in accord with his character and with his word. Because he's faithful to himself and he's faithful to his word. But we also see in, in, in this passage that we can trust in God because of his nature. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He is eternal and unchanging. He is immutable. So what he says can be taken to the bank. I mean, who can be more trustworthy than God? Because all things come from his hands. Because he is the creator. And there's this phrase, the ends of the earth. The creator of the ends of the earth. And that is repeated throughout the Old Testament. The ends of the earth. The whole of the earth. He is the creator of. And he's also, we also see his omnipotence here. We see his omnipotence. So we, we, we can trust in him because of his nature, that he's not only eternal and unchanging, he is the creator, he is all-powerful, but he is also omniscient, all-knowing, and all-wise. His understanding is unsearchable. It, it's, it's, you, you cannot find it out. It is infinite. You, you cannot search it out. And, and this reminds me of... Um, the passage at the end of Deuteronomy. It says, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. In, in, in other words, we don't worry so much about God's secret will for our lives or e even for the, the nations around us or, or our own circumstances or context, but our concern is to be with God's revealed will for us as, um, you know, may, many people have said there, there, there's a reason why God's secret will is called his secret will, and that's because it's a secret. <laughs> it's, we're not supposed to know it, we're not supposed to be concerned about it. We're supposed to trust him, and we're supposed to trust in his sovereignty and his divine providence to lead us and to guide us through the trials and challenges of this life. That you know, oftentimes we have our plans and we 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 have our expectations of what's going to happen tomorrow and our plan for the next week. But the truth of the matter is, we don't know what's going to happen an hour from now. We, we can make our plans and we can assume, but we really don't know. You know, uh, December uh, 6, uh, 1941, many people in America thought that 
the next day was going to be like that day. But Pearl Harbor happened, and their whole world was turned upside down. And throughout all of human history, we have those days where everything changes, and the paths of our lives are changed and turned upside down. But we can always trust in God. We can always trust in him because of who he is, because of his faithfulness, because of his nature. John Owen says, um, the holiness of our actions consisteth in a conformity unto his precepts and not unto his purposes. In other words, this, as Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, we're not to concern ourselves with his purposes and his plans. Those are his plans. We are to concern ourselves with his revealed will, with his precepts, with his commands, and to be obedient. As the song says, trust and obey, for there's no other way. So we trust in God because of his faithfulness, his faithfulness to his people, his character. We trust in God because of his nature. And we trust in God because of his goodness, his character. Verse 29 to 31, he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Not only is, is God all-powerful and all-knowing, and he's, he's unchanging and he's eternal, um, which is Great, um, but he's good. I, I mean, if, if, uh, if God wasn't good, then his, his um, omniscience and his omnipotence and his uh, immutability, his eternality, uh, if he wasn't good, that would be scary for us. <laughs> but he is good. And because he's good... And he gives life to all people, and he provides for all peoples, and, and even animals. Even animals, even, you know, when, when uh, uh, God was sending Jonah to the Ninevites, he spoke about having mercy and compassion on the animals. And because he is good, and because he's a provider, and because he's gracious and compassionate, we can trust in him because he has a trustworthy character. I mean, God's self-definition of himself. And when Moses was on the mountain, he said, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And that phrase is repeated in the Psalms. It's repeated several times throughout the Old Testament. That's God's um, self-definition of himself, his self-revelation to his people, that he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, yet who will by no means clear the guilty. He's also just. 
He's also just. And, and yet, before you know, Moses goes up on the mountain, in Exodus 19, he says, the Lord called to him out of the mountain um, and says, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And, and, and here's a phrase that I want you to, to see in Exodus 19 that, you know, because we have the same phrase almost in, in Isaiah 40, 31. He says, how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. And it's almost like he, Isaiah repeats that phrase to bring them back to the reminder of their deliverance and their redemption from Egypt. And he says, he brought and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And so it's interesting. There's these calls throughout this passage of chapter 40, 27, and 31. There's these reminders for Israel. The reminders of Jacob's character and how God had changed him to one who strives with God and had, had used him, in, in a sense, to, to become the, the patriarch, the main patriarch of Israel. Through, through him, his 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. And to remember um, his covenants, his covenant to Abraham, and his faithfulness to his word. And there's also reminders of, of God's nature uh, as creator, his character. And then there's a reminder of his works and how he delivered um, his people out of slavery. And this passage ends with a call to wait on the Lord, which is it's strengthened by that, that reminder of his miraculous deliverance in the past. That, that was the, the ten plagues in, in Egypt and, and that the Passover, which they were supposed to faithfully celebrate every year. That, those were all reminders of God's redemption. And, and they're called to trust in him. They're called to hope in him. Even though... Their circumstance is almost hopeless from a human perspective. They're called to just hope on the Lord, to wait on the Lord, to trust in the Lord, to obey the Lord, and to trust that he has this all worked out. He has this all worked out, and he's going to work it out in precise timing, just like he did in the book of Esther, in the book of Ruth, just like he always does. Whether we can see it or not, he's going to work it out. And he goes back to this reminder of the deliverance from Egypt. And yet, Isaiah begins this chapter in verse 40. He begins it with a call of future deliverance. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. 
Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And perhaps when Isaiah first either preached this to the people or wrote it out or sent it to them in a scroll, perhaps the first time they read this, they're they're thinking deliverance from either the Assyrians or the Babylonians, uh, uh, a restoration of their kingdom, uh, maybe a restoration back to the golden age of Solomon. But no, that's not what he was talking about. He was talking about a future deliverance, not not just an earthly deliverance, but a spiritual deliverance, a a much better deliverance. Because as most of you know, these are the words of John the Baptist. In Luke chapter 3, it writes, and and Luke being the, the precise physician and the historian and had um, searched out eyewitnesses and had investigated all the things um, which happened during Jesus' life to to write a a gospel. He says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Look at that specificity, that historical accuracy, that precision, which Luke writes this account. That even from an earthly perspective, we can see that those things are true. And he goes on to talk about John the Baptist. And he said, he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And that came in the person of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That was the deliverance. That was what the people in Isaiah's time were to wait upon. Looking backwards to their past deliverance and the past faithfulness of God and His character to redeem them, they were to then wait upon the Lord for their future deliverance. They were wait to wait, and as they waited upon Him, though they didn't know when it would come, but in waiting, in trusting, in hoping, not in their circumstances, not in their own power, but in the eternal God, they would renew their strength. They would mount up with wings like eagles. They would run and not be weary. They shall faint, walk and not faint. 
Does that mean they would not go into exile? No. It just means spiritually thinking, um, their attitude, their faith would be strengthened. And there's a sense that a believer should be able to thrive in any circumstance. Isaiah said in chapter 26, verse 3, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. That's what we're called to do, to trust and obey. And how we do that is by knowing our God, by knowing who he is. And the more we know about him, the more we can trust him. And the more we trust him, the easier it will be to obey him. And then we will all renew our strength and mount up with wings like eagles because God is faithful. He's faithful to his people. He's faithful to his covenants. He's faithful to his character. And he is our Lord. And if he has delivered us from eternal condemnation in the flames of hell through Jesus Christ, then he can deliver us from any earthly circumstance. But if he doesn't, we know that his ways are higher than our ways, and he is trustworthy. So with that, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, please forgive us for our fickle faith and our unbelief. Lord, we wander in so many ways. We falter and we fail. Yet you never fail us. Your promises are sure. Your word is trustworthy because you are trustworthy. And we can trust in you. Help us to trust and obey. Help us to honor you in all we think, say, and do. And to give glory to your name as your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.